but in Alito's opinion, he talks a lot about what the Constitution does and does not say. And the truth is, is that the Constitution does not talk about abortion. Hmm. It doesn't. And so they've taken all these different amendments, the 14th Amendment, the First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Ninth Amendment, all of that, and tried to create a foundation to kind of hang their hat on within the four corners of the Constitution. And what Alito says is there isn't one, and it needs to go back to the states, and the legislators need to make a decision. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. If you've been enjoying the podcast, would you take a minute and log onto your favorite podcast platform, rate us, and leave us a review? It would be a tremendous help, and it allows others to find us easily. This week, we'd like to thank Oaks for his review. Oaks says, I listen to an episode or two each morning. It's a great way to start the day in the office, and the topics covered are always interesting and relevant to the current events as well as the Christian faith. Thank you so much, Oaks. Leave us a review. We would love to share your feedback on the show in a future episode. You're hearing about it on the news and in your social media feeds. Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey have officially been overruled through the Supreme Court decision on Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. It seems like half the nation is rejoicing and half the nation is shocked and outraged. But what really happens next? What are the legal implications of this decision? In episode 148, I had a conversation with one of my favorite biblical scholars, Dr. Bill Davis, on the pending Supreme Court decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade. He gives great insight into the biblical view of life and family, godly decisions surrounding both. As we talked as a team, we realized there was a lot of misinformation going around about the outworking of this decision from a legal perspective. So we invited Carrie Murray Nellis to Candid Conversations. She is a seasoned attorney with a focus on adoption and child advocacy. She has followed this case very closely. Together we discuss what the decision means and how it will impact abortion on a national and state level. We also cover how we as believers can be ready to come alongside expectant mothers who will need support as they navigate a difficult and life-changing situation. We hope this episode sheds light on an issue many are passionate about and encourages you to be ready to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Carrie, thank you so much for taking the time to help us think through the legal ramifications of uh, what potentially might come down uh, the pipe through this overturning of Roe versus Wade. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Who would have thought that, you know, an attorney could be useful, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we started having this conversation as a team. I kept saying, I want a constitutional lawyer or somebody who can speak into this from the legal perspective, because I think mm-hmm. we definitely wanted to understand it from a biblical framework, from an ethical framework. But I think it's important because We are a nation that is built on laws, and there will be laws that are passed, and we need to understand what those will look like. And Carrie, as you know, 
and we'll come back to this, but there's a lot of myths about what the law does and does not do. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to clarify those things for our listeners, and we hope that this is a, a great help to people, uh, as I'm sure it will be. Well, as an attorney, I yeah. have to give the caveat that I am not a constitutional attorney, so I'm yes, just saying that. Yes, but. yes. That's true. That's true. But uh, you have a lot of great insight on this and just all of your work with adoption and child advocacy. Obviously, this is a, an issue that is very close to your heart. And so we're grateful to have your expertise in this. I wonder if you just take a few minutes and tell us about your law group. Tell us about Abiding Love Adoption Agency and the charities, the sort of work that you're involved with. Absolutely. Um, I am a strange bird in that I grew up wanting to be a missionary and went to law school. And most people are sitting there saying, how does that happen? Um, I literally got married and three months into my marriage, I woke my husband up in the middle of the night and said, God's telling me to go to law school. And he said, me too. So like normal newlyweds, uh, we quit our jobs and went to law school. I remember I called my father because I'm the youngest of four girls. And I called him and said, Hey, I'm going to law school. And he literally hung up on me. So, um, because he was like, no, I'm done. I'm I'm done done paying for tuition. (laughs) No, you're done. Um, but you know, I sat there all throughout law school and my husband is a brilliant tax attorney, estate planner. He knew he wanted to be able to help people to structure their estates so that they could give more to the church and to organizations. Mm. And I literally, sat there for three years being jealous of him saying, you know, God, I swear I heard your voice when you told me to go to law school, but I have no clue why I'm here. Um, But I loved my time at Mercer. And as a newbie attorney, um, again, I kept saying, God, I swear I heard your voice, but I don't understand this. (laughs) Um, But God really laid the foundation. Um, You know, I started working at a general practice uh, law firm in Savannah, Georgia. And um, my first adoption case came across my board. And um, I fell in love with the possibility of uh, what adoption can do for not only families, Mm. but for the birth mother and the birth family. I, at the same time, was asked to be on the board of CASA, which is Court Appointed Special Advocates in Savannah. And I had the audacity to try to figure out what exactly they did, because evidently as a board member, I was really just supposed to fundraise. But I failed at that. Um, so I fell in love with juvenile court and I literally started mm-hmm. taking on pro, um, pro bono and just court appointed cases. And the powers that be at the law firm said that did not bring in enough money. And so I quit that day and started the Murray Nellis Law Group and um, totally on faith and a lot of law school loans. Um, and um, I started the Murray Nellis Law Group to be about women and adoption and child advocacy. So I really cut my teeth as an attorney representing parents uh, against defects uh, and doing guardian at litem work. And I saw how broken the foster care system is. I saw uh, how the, the goal kept moving. And mm. unfortunately, at the beginning of a case, you can usually identify, and I love it when people prove me wrong, but you can usually identify the ones that are going to be able to work the case plan that um, want to work the case plan. And so I saw how open adoption allowed for a mother and a father to get back in the driver's seat and to make decisions so that they could decide on the family they wanted their child to be adopted by and they could have a relationship. And then as the more 
I did adoptions, I saw the internet just blew adoption out of the water. And all of a sudden, agencies from New York and Utah and Texas were working with women in Georgia. And so I would get hired as an attorney to walk into the hospital room uh, to take what we in Georgia call the surrenders. And I would be the first person she saw in person regarding her adoption. Nobody had walked this with her and no one had um, sat at Waffle House over a pecan waffle and talked about her options and what Mm. this really was going to look like. And so I made, again, the mistake of saying, God, you really should fix that. And so we have Abiding Love. So Abiding Love is a very different adoption agency than any other adoption agency. A lot of people are still scratching their heads saying, how does this work? But it was the vision that God gave, and I feel that it works. We are completely 100% centered around the expectant mother. Mm. We do not have any waning adoptive families, and we're purposeful in that because our purpose and mission is not to get her to make an adoption plan. It isn't to match her, but to empower her to parent, or if parenting is not a possibility, then to make an adoption plan. And so what we do is if we get to that point that making an adoption plan, we will reach out to adoption consultants, not facilitators. Facilitators are illegal in Georgia and most states. Um, But they've already have a list of a roster of pre-approved prospective adoptive families, and they have been vetted and not only making sure that they're safe and home study approved, but that they love Jesus. And they don't just check the box saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, but actually love the mission of this. And so we reach out to them and say, this is what mom is looking for. This is the kind of relationship. This is what we know about the health of the baby and the health of mom. And they send me profiles and mom looks at the profiles and decides they're in a family. And then they come under the umbrella of a love. So we are centered completely financially on faith because I don't have adoptive parents paying $15,000 to sit on a waiting list. Um, Because again, that is not my Mm. mission. And uh, we're centered completely around her, but we feel that that that's our calling. And Mm. um, we feel that that is a better holistic approach for her. And then charities, because, you know, I mean, who needs two jobs? Why not go for a third, right? Um, (laughs) Yeah, the hat trick. Um, Really, I just sit at home and eat bonbons all day. But um, Abiding Love Charities grew out of the fact that with Abiding Love, we were providing extensive Mm -hmm. post-placement care after a mother placed for adoption. Unfortunately, a lot of agencies, once she signs, it's a transaction and women have been mistreated and made to be a commodity. And so Mm -hmm. once she signs and all the money is exchanged, they're done. And so no one's there to talk about the mom, the woman in the corner crying. And so we have support groups and we have a birth mother advocate afterwards. We have a birth mother grant um, to help them achieve their dreams. Unfortunately, other agencies weren't doing that. So we created Abiding Love Charities to fill that gap. And I'm excited. Actually, this Thursday, we are launching the country's first faith-based birth mother support group curriculum. And it's um, been a labor of love. And um, we're trying to get it in all of the pregnancy resource centers because pregnancy resource centers should be working, not only helping women when they're considering making an adoption plan, but well after. And pregnancy centers have um, resources for women who are post-abortive. They have support groups. They have resources for women who decide to parent. They have earned while you learn. They have um, parenting classes but there's nothing for the woman who decides to place. And Mm. until we provide those resources for women, we cannot be upset that they don't even consider adoption as a viable parenting choice. So Mm. that was probably more than you ever wanted, but but there you go. I mean, you know, Carrie, uh, having had friends who have gone through the adoption process and just 
the hoops that they go through, the pain that is involved. I mean, even, you know, the, the money issue, it's frustrating because it's a, a noble thing. Mm-hmm. And yet it can be hijacked by people who have ulterior motives mm-hmm. and it's saddening. So all of what you just shared is so encouraging to me because this is what Christians are called to do, right? I mean, we go into those places and we provide help where we can. You obviously have a lot more insight and ability into those spheres but obviously, you, you need people to come alongside you and help you and support you. And so I think it's great and really encouraging to hear about the good work that Christians are doing in that sphere of adoption. And, and so, no, I, I'm, I'm grateful that you were able to share all that with us. Now, obviously, we're here to talk about the, the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health mm-hmm. ruling that could come any day now from the Supreme Court. The first thing I think, you know, it was unprecedented that the draft was released. Uh, that's Crazy. the first time I think in Supreme Court history. Um, let's talk a little bit, because I'm sure you've read through it. Let's talk about what the draft says and what it doesn't say. Correct. Walk us through that a little bit, because I'm sure if most people listening to this have awareness, but maybe not details. And right. so I think it'd be helpful if we just sort of navigate that landscape together. Well, I love um, the opinion that was released is by Alito, Justice Alito, um, writing for the majority. And again, I state that we don't know if that is going to be the final draft. We just don't know. Uh, Justice Roberts did confirm that it was a legitimate draft. So that was one of the first questions that all of us had. But I love the way that he lays out his argument. The first thing he kind of goes through the history. How are we where we are today? Right. And I think a lot of people forget how this came about. And I think it's important to talk about the truth is abortion really was first a state's issue. Every state had the right to make a decision about what their legislators, the people who voted their legislators and their legislators would then vote it and make law regarding abortion. And then Roe, of course, came in in 1973 and they basically said, yeah, they federalized it. They said, no, that is not a state's issue anymore. And they found that there was a constitutional right for the right to an abortion under the due process clause. Mm-hmm. And Roe did some really interesting things. You know, I remember sitting there in law school going through this and I was like, I never knew that. And one of them is, you know, it's so common language to us in our generation that we talk about first trimester and second trimester and third trimester. It's like, oh, where are you? Are you are you in your first, second? We didn't have trimesters until Roe. They Roe in the Roe decision defined and created the terms of trimesters. And um, so what they were trying to do is to create a line of viability. And so I think that's important for people to see. And a lot of people think, uh, you know, you hear Roe must go, we got to overturn Roe. Roe is the name, you know, that everybody knows of the seminal case regarding right. abortion. But the truth is, is that most parts already been overturned because Casey, Planned Parenthood of Southeastern mm-hmm. Pennsylvania versus Casey uh, came in and they changed things up. And so we had two justices um, who, you know, t- voted essentially not to change Roe at all. Then we had four that were actually voted to overrule Roe, and then three that sat there and said, we don't endorse Roe, <laughs> but <laughs> we, we want to talk about stare decisis and all of that. And so your listeners have probably heard terms like stare decisis. If any of your listeners are nerds like me who listen to the oral arguments, you know, that was a big um, part of a big chunk of the questions that were asked by the justices. What about stare decisis? And stare decisis, you know, is where essentially 
you're following precedent, past precedent. And because it's been decided, that is like a foundational brick. And then we layer other laws on top of that. And so one of the big problems is, oh my gosh, we can't overrule Roe because of stare decisis. It's decided law, it's precedent. Um, And the irony of that is Casey did that. Casey did overrule a good chunk mm, of Roe. But there's also other cases, right? We have the Brown case, right? The Brown versus the Board of Education. Right. Uh, and Kansas, that, yeah. you know, it was separate but equal, right? Right. Well, guess what? Rightfully so, that was overturned, even though that was sorry, decisis and everything would have said, no, you can't do that. But Plessy versus Ferguson, Ferguson sure. they overruled it. And they yeah. said, you know, along with six other Supreme precedent cases, uh, Supreme Court precedences that said mm. separate but equal. Yeah. So it's an interesting argument that they say we can't do this because of stare decisis. And again, if other nerds like me were even listening at the confirmation hearings for uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Amy Barrett. You know, Mm. they were talking, well, how do you feel about stare decisis? And that's what they were getting at. But what Casey did is they threw out the trimesters. So we still use it, you know, that in our lingo, but they threw out that and they said, okay, you can't have an undue burden on a women's right to have an abortion. That's the line. Um, And they held, you know, Rose Central holding that, you know, the state may not constitutionally provide or protect fetal life before viability. So they, they had that demarcation of viability. But the problem and one of the problems that we've had in so many cases is the terms that they used in Casey, like viability and undue burden. Those are terms that deem a lot of arguments about what that means. There's no clear definition of that, which has brought up a lot of litigation. And what this Dobbs case has done is it's saying, hey, guys, we need to go back to how it was before Roe and make it a state Mm. issue. Um, And that's one of the big misconceptions is that Dobbs is abolishing abortion. What it's doing is saying, you know what, in Roe, you were legislating from the bench, which is a huge no-no. If you want a, a law, then it needs to go through the proper channels of going through the House and the Senate and then the president, you know, signing it or within the states, um, having it go from the state house, state Senate, and then the governor. But it doesn't need to be across the board. And that's what Dobbs is saying is that it needs to go back to the states. And it needs to be a state issue. And so there's a lot of misconceptions about that. Um, But in Alito's opinion, he talks a lot about what the Constitution does and does not say. And the truth is, is that the Constitution does not talk about abortion. It doesn't. And so they've taken all these different amendments, the 14th Amendment, the First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Ninth Amendment, all of that, and tried to create a foundation to kind of hang their hat on within the four corners of of the Constitution. And um, what Alito says is there isn't one, and it needs to go back to the states, and uh, the legislators need to make a decision. Now, the interesting thing with that is Two weeks ago, or I guess it was a month ago now. Goodness gracious, time flies. But um, it was in the U.S. Senate to make a law making abortion legal, and it didn't pass. So, I mean, we've gone through that. And our forefathers were brilliant in so many ways. And Mm -hmm. having the checks and balances of the judicial system and the executive branch and the legislative branch, we are not supposed to legislate from the bench. That is a totally separate error. 
Right. Let's talk quickly about the benefits of this going to the states. Mm -hmm. What does it look like? How does it help, for instance, organizations like yours? How would it play out? So I love that it goes back to the states because, again, we are a nation of, we're a democracy, and we vote our uh, legislatures in and um, allows for people, if they want and they believe in abortion, then they can vote in people within their state sure. to make those decisions. Right. If they do not, then they can vote in their state for people that are going to be pro-life. But I also love that the thing is, is that we need to be empowering women, Abortion doesn't do anything other than saying, you can't do this, you're not going to be able to go to school and be a mom, or you'll never be able to make an adoption plan because of X, Y, and Z. And what this does by taking it back to the states is it allows for the state not only, like in Georgia's heartbeat bill, to not only put in their own pro-life bill and say that no abortions after, you know, the heartbeat is detected, but also safeguards to help women within the state make sure that they're safe medically, but then also the social services they need. And for example, um, I love the fact that in Georgia's heartbeat bill, we have in there that men have to pay child support before the baby's born. Yeah. What a novel idea. <laughs> what and, a novel idea. I mean, I, yes. Disincentivizing we, the I know. And then procreation like, outside oh. of marriage. Exactly. I mean, because men need to be paying child support. They need yeah. to. Uh, and I love that because, you know, Abiding Love were licensed in Georgia, Florida, and South Carolina. And so um, I have to confuse all these different laws from these different states. Yeah. But one of the things I love about Florida law is that we have to give notice to a man before the baby is born. If we're involved, we can give him notice and he has to start paying child support then. And that shows the mom whether or not he's going to step up and yeah. he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Our heartbeat bill lays the foundation for that. Um, and men, a lot of times, I'm sorry, but they will say, oh, yeah, I'll do it. And then they never follow through. So this helps a woman to see while she is pregnant, okay, is he going to do what he says he's going to do? Because I'm in order to be a parent, I'm going to have to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I'm going to need this amount of money. Um, and one of the criticisms is, well, what if he He's not the father and he's been paying all this child support. Well, then she has to return all the money plus interest. So next, these are the things that allowing states to make the decision is we can not only say abortion is illegal at this point or that point, but what can we do to help the mother to be successful as a parent. And I think that's one of the things that unfortunately the other side has missed that we're trying to do. I was really saddened um, in the Georgia case, the federal court of appeals stayed our case until the Dobbs, which I understand. I was hoping that they would go ahead and put into effect some of the amazing social service stuff that we have in our bill, such as the child support to go ahead and get that going. But putting it back to the States allows for that. And that is important because you know, women need services. We need to extend Medicaid. We need to do these yeah. things. And this, putting it back to the states allows for us to wrap around those services for her. Yeah. We've kind of started to talk a little bit about this, but let's talk about the myths that surround what this could look like. Um, I've spent some time reading through even major publications and, and people voicing their opinion. And I'm not talking about the comment section. I'm talking about in articles, mm -hmm. what their concerns are. And a lot of them just seem really ungrounded. 
Um, So let's talk a little bit through the ones that you've heard, and then maybe I'll bring up some of the ones that I've read, and let's talk through that so that people have clarity on what is and isn't realistic. Yeah, um, there's a couple. One of them is the criminality uh, that women are going to be prosecuted for having abortions. I am speaking from Georgia's because that is the, the one that I have studied at length. And it is across the board the same. Um, but I caveat again, I'm an attorney, I have to make a caveat, I have not read every heartbeat bill that has right. gone through. Right. Right. Um, but the general premise is, women will not be criminally held responsible, who would be criminally held responsible is the doctor or medical professionals that actually perform the abortion. So, In a state that has voted exactly. to make it illegal, yes. Yes. Okay. So say the state of New York, it's abortion or demand up till birth, then that's not going to happen. A doctor is not going to be held criminally liable in the state of New York. But in Georgia, if they do an abortion in the third trimester or second trimester, then yes, at that point, the doctor or whoever was involved medically and professionally would be held liable. And then, you know, I've been talking to a lot of my doctor and OBGYN friends, and I'm like, so are y'all scared that you'll be seeking criminal cases when it was a miscarriage and all you were doing is a a DNC. Um, And, you know, the doctors look at me like I have three heads. They're like, it's when they have a miscarriage, you know, I mean, there's no heartbeat. So (laughs) So we, you can't be criminal for that. And, and um, doctors have to document all of those things. Um, So that's one of the big issues. Uh, Another big issue. And and I had this from a, a birth mom, who uh, gave birth last month, and she was eager to get to her post OBGYN appointment because uh, she wanted to get her contraception. Because she was told, um, and she's a college student, she was told on her campus that Dobbs could keep people from being able to get contraception. This has nothing to do with contraception. Right. It has nothing to do with that. And let me be clear that abortion is not contraception. So there's talk about that. And so the abortion pill, that's going to be an issue. But any contraception, um, like birth control pills or anything like that, that is not at all involved in the our heartbeat bill or any heartbeat bill that I have read or seen or heard about. One that I've seen lately that's popped up is now the concern is over gay marriage, that uh, mm-hmm. once the Supreme Court ruling comes in on this, the next thing that's going to come down is Oberfell. You and I talked about this earlier, but I mean, Alito kind of addresses that, at least in the draft. Yeah, in the draft, he does. He goes through the history, again, of abortion, and then, you know, the history of how when cases are deeply rooted in um, American history and different issues that are deeply rooted and um, that of marriage is, but abortion is not. And he talks about and creates a distinction and specifically talks about marriage in his draft uh, that he, he puts in there about that marriage is not on the same platform. It's not on the same um, level. And we have to remember that we're talking about uh, one of the big issues is we've got a life, a human life that is a different, and there's a, a, a deeming of personhood, right? That is different than the Oberfeld's opinion regarding um, marriage equality. So um, it's apples and oranges, and he yeah. makes a distinction of that, which I really appreciated. Um, and I hope is in the final draft, um, but a lot of people will unfortunately overlook that. 
Okay, let's think about this. And and again, um, as a friend of mine said, let's not uh, pop the champagne bottles just yet and take a victory lap because, uh, again, at this point of our interview, no determination, no uh, no opinion's been released. So let's talk about moving forward. And we can speak specifically for the state mm-hmm. of Georgia. Let's think from a, the perspective of the Christian believer and just relatability to people who are going through this trial. Because what I'm guessing is that with this, people will start going to other states to have abortions if they if they live in a state where it is outlawed. So let's talk a little bit about how your organization would fit into what's coming in down the track and then how Christians can come alongside and be supportive. Because the one thing we don't want is for people to see the Christian community as the people who are just angry, hateful, don't care. And this is the, I know the argumentation that comes is that you want to be involved in the decision, but then we can't find you when the aftermath happens, right? Which is where are the believers after an adoption, after the choice to pursue life. And and I think that's important for us because that's what we're really called to. Mm-hmm. So let's talk down that sort of moving down the path yeah. a little bit under the assumption of this coming out soon. It is time. It is time to put our actions to what we have been saying for decades. And we have a moment as the body of Christ to show people who Jesus is, was, and this is going to be a make it or break it because we can either really mess this up and really, um, you know, show people who, who Jesus really isn't, or we can really show them the love of Jesus. And if we look at Jesus's life, he got down and dirty with um, sinners. I mean, he was loving on them. He was sitting with them. He was talking with them. He was healing. He wasn't sitting there on, you know, a big platform and just speaking. He was doing. And this is our moment to get going. It is time to roll up our sleeves and get to work. I was talking with someone who I will not name, but I was talking with someone about what are we going to do you know, after this, should we have a big march? And, you know, I said, you know what, you can count me and you can count abiding love out of this march, unless we are going to cover the Capitol steps with diapers and formula and clothes and the tangible things that women are going to need. And because it is time to step up. And so I feel that the church has done that in a mighty way, but it's going to have to be done even more. And um, we're going to have to work together. And that's where the beauty of the body of Christ is. I was just talking this morning with a woman who runs a pregnancy resource center in North Georgia. And um, she wanted me to come by and talk with a mom this afternoon. And she said, I just don't know how to talk to her about her, her options regarding adoption. And I said, because that's not your role. That's my role, but we got to work together on it. Um, And so we have a huge opportunity to, as the body of Christ to work together, but it's time to roll up our sleeves. Um, We've got to be supporting our local pregnancy resource centers. We need every pregnancy resource center. And this could be a very unpopular opinion, but from boots on the ground, someone that's been doing this for 16 years, every pregnancy center needs to hire a social worker and have a social worker on staff to help women to navigate the system because the system is not easy to navigate. And um, we need someone at every center to be able to help them to get on Medicaid, to get on food stamps, to get on WIC or into child support. How do they do that? Um, To then helping them with their local resources of what they're going to need, how they can 
you know, get into an earn while you learn program where they can get diapers, they can get clothes, um, where they can go to get a free car seat. These are the things that we've got to be able to tangibly navigate for women. And that is going to require a social worker or in staff to help do that. And it's got to be in their local communities. That is a need. We have a need for adoption agencies to be there, not about the adoptive parents. No offense to adoptive parents. I have so many friends that are adoptive parents. I love adoptive parents, but this adoption is not about them. Adoption is about the mom and the baby. And um, if we're focusing on them, it will all work out. I know that the child's going to be placed in a home where he or she's going to know about Jesus because I'm going to make sure that any homes that we present are going to be, right? right? But I'm worried about the mom crying in the corner. So we need more agencies to buck the system or the traditional um, adoption model and change things and be all about her because unfortunately, adoption has become transactional. It's about yeah. huge amounts of money, which is yeah. ridiculous. And... Um, you know, a lot of people ask, why is adoption expensive? Well, when adoption is done right, it's a lot of effort and time that's put into it. But unfortunately, there's a lot of adoption agencies, like I got hired to come in to take the legal surrender paperwork, and no one has spent the time with her and talked with her and done all of these things. And so we need to be holding agencies accountable to that. Our government, um, we need to be enforcing uh, laws to keep predatory agencies out of Georgia. We have the laws, but how do we enforce that? I know that last year I had a, a great meeting with Governor Kemp's office and uh, with Chris Carr's office and the Solicitor General, and they see the problem, but we need to enforce it and we need some better, stronger laws to give them more teeth to it. Um, in case in point, I had a woman that was trafficked and I'm, I'm calling it trafficking because it is mm. what it is. Mm. Uh, but she was pregnant and she um, doesn't speak any English. She's here illegally. And she was trafficked from Georgia to Houston, Texas by an agency that is licensed in Houston and Texas, not licensed here. And um, the social worker at the hospital felt something was off. And so she got her in touch with some resources who then got her in touch with me. And I'm like, look, if you don't want to make an adoption plan, you don't have to. And she said, well, they're telling me that if I don't sign this document right now, I'm going to be reported to ICE. And these kinds of things are happening. So we need our law enforcement to be acting on these and stop being predatory against women. We need to be boots from the ground how do we serve? We're going to need more food pantries. We need to work within our legislature to expand and extend Medicaid because we need to make sure that women um, have good prenatal care. And then also not only just uh, six weeks after or even six months after, but a year, they need to make sure that they have um, insurance so that they can go to the doctor. And if they want contraception, um, I'm not going to get into that argument, but um, that they can have good medical care. But we also need to do incentives for nurses. We need more nurses. We need um, more doctors in some of our rural areas. Yeah. And um, I really do urge um, all governments, but particularly Governor Kemp's office, to find some way to find incentives for nurses and for doctors in rural areas because we need that. 
uh, a lot of pregnancy resource centers are seeing that as a need. And so they are becoming medical centers. And so they have doctors and staff so that wow. they can provide that. And, you know, there's argument, of course, there's going to be argument as to whether or not that's good or, or bad. Right. But that is a huge, huge need. Um, so it's time for us to roll up our sleeves. It's time for us to to follow through on all the things we promised and said. And it's going to take all of us working together and it's going to take the churches saying, okay, what can we do? How can we be the hands and feet of Jesus and show them Jesus's love by the way we love? Yeah. People will know you by uh, the way you love one another. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly uh, words that ring in our ears uh, as we think about this. Carrie, is there anything else you could think of that we we haven't touched on that you feel like people need to know about as this opinion gets nearer? I think that one of the things that we need to talk about, and I I don't want to get into graphic detail um, because a lot of abortion can be very disturbing. Yeah. But I think that people are like, why are we saying you know eight weeks or six weeks or you know twelve weeks? And so I think it's important for people to understand that you know, within five to six weeks, uh, the heartbeat is there. Um, Within eight weeks, the baby is moving. Within nine weeks, all basic physiological functions are present. 10 weeks, uh, vital organs are functioning and um, hair and nails, fingernails and toenails are growing. At 11 weeks, the diaphragm is developing. I mean, how crazy that at 11 Mm. weeks. I had dinner with a mama yesterday and she is 10 weeks pregnant. And I'm sitting there going, you can't even tell that no, she is two right. weeks pregnant, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but I'm sitting there and I just, because I know this, I'm like, your baby already has fingernails. Your baby already has hair. You know, at 12 weeks, everything is formed. 12 weeks. And this lie that has been brought and sold that, you know, it's just a clump of tissue. Yeah. It's not. It's not. And I think people need to do their own research and find out for themselves um, what is happening at eight weeks. Why are we saying heartbeat? You know, what determines if um, someone is alive or not is if they have a heartbeat. So that's what we use um, now. Um, So why aren't we doing that at the beginning, right? But the other thing is, is women who are expecting an unplanned pregnancy are in crisis. Yeah. And we want to rush women into making a decision when they're in crisis. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how you are with decisions when you make personal decisions about your family, but I have a very hold steady rule Mm -hmm. that I don't make any decision if I'm in crisis or I'm upset. Um, because I'm not going to make the right decision. Right. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that tends to be <laughs> the case. They, they say not is. to do that. right? Exactly. And what we need to be doing is saying, you know what? Just breathe. You don't have to make a decision right now. Just breathe. Just let's talk about all of your options. And what is happening is people want to rush you into, you've got to do it now. You've got to do it now. Um, But breathe, take a breather, look at all of the options, find someone that is going to be able to explain to you of all of your options and what it really looks like and not with a jaded view. And I mean that on all ends too. You know, if a woman is considering, you know, the abortion pill, talk to someone who has done it because they make it seem like it's a heavy period. Well, guess what? I have held many a woman in the bathroom Mm. when they are passing their baby through the Mm. abortion pill. And that is Mm. not a period. Mm. 
And so you need to talk to people. Every decision that ever needs to be made, you need to talk to as many people and you need to get as many first facts from the source that you can. And so I really am praying that, you know, women will know that they can be empowered. We can empower women to make decisions and not have to do it in crisis, but that they can be uh, surrounded by others that are loving them and want to love them and not just say it, not just the Southern, oh, bless you and God love you, but actually be his hands and feet. The other thing I forgot to mention of what we need is we're going to need more foster parents. Yeah, And that is a huge area that the church can solve a huge part of our foster care problem. I mean, if we took every church and half of the church families became foster parents, just half of them in every church, we would have so many foster homes. And so that's a huge area that we're going to have to step up in. Um, And maybe not everybody is called to foster. I mean, we've been a foster family before and um, for a season. And then there's, we're not in a season right now where we can be foster parents, but we can bring meals to people that we are know who are foster parents, or we can bring them diapers when they get a placement. Sure. Mm -hmm. We can get approved for respite um, just for like the weekend so that they can go a vacation or have some time away. We can get approved to be transporters. So when I say fostering, I mean, not everybody is going to be called to be a foster parent, but uh, we all can serve. And again, that is our calling as the body of Christ is to be serving. And the neat thing is, is we are formed with a special DNA. And not only is it, you know, that I'm going to have brown hair and brown eyes, but God gave me special giftings. It's scary, but it's true. And, you know, he gave each of us and our job is to use it to the best of our ability. And that's where working it together is going to make a huge difference. Mm. Helpful words, challenging words. Carrie Murray Nellis, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss these issues with us on Candid Conversations. Murray Nellis Law Group, Executive Director of Abiding Love Adoption Agency and Executive Director of Abiding Love Charities. Again, Carrie, thank you so much for being on Candid Conversations. Thanks for having an attorney on. So, goodness gracious. (laughs) With pleasure. With pleasure. (laughs) Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It does help people to find us. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.